Open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Revelation 2, verse 1. In a series on strength for today, hope for tomorrow. Our study of Revelation, verse 1. And this is the Word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested uh, those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Uh, Yet yet, uh, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers uh, will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we're so glad that we have your word that's true and is certain, that, Father, you have spoken in time and place, and that what you said, Father, through Jesus to the churches applies to us here and now. So, Father, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to understand your word, Father, to apply it, Father, uh, to shape the way we think, Father, the way we live, the way we love. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're going through the mail and you notice the letters from the Internal Revenue Service. And it, uh, what happens? Fear, at least for me, but I get those. Um, or maybe it's a bill from the hospital, um, and you're sort of afraid to open it up. Or perhaps it's from a brother in Christ, and uh, no, not any of you, by the way, but uh, on opening, you notice it's handwritten, and it's five pages long, and they're not particularly pleased with you, and actually praying that you end up in the hospital for a couple of weeks to reflect on what you've done. Really happened, folks, okay? Um, uh, 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 or maybe it's a short, terse letter, and the person's angry, and they threaten you. Uh, all sorts of scary letters, not only now just in your mailbox, but also through email. And of course, there are the good letters we receive. You know, the notes of encouragement, letters of thanks, uh, letters of information about family, letters from friends, Christmas letters. And we get these, and we love to get these, uh, no matter whether they're through uh, the post office or the email. Thankfully, in my experience, uh, the, those kinds of letters far, far outnumber the scary ones. But let's be honest, it's the scary ones that we remember the most. Now, Revelation 2 and 3 contain seven letters from Jesus written to seven churches in what uh, is today Turkey. It was referred to in those days as Asia or Asia Minor. They're letters to give them strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Uh, And they are, as we shall see, challenging, they're reassuring, they're caring, but I might add, in some cases, 
a little bit scary. Now, what about this first one? Is it scary? Let's go to the text and see. First, just a short primer on the seven letters. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are letters to seven churches, and I might think of as the postal route going out of the city of Ephesus uh, in a uh, a clockwise direction uh, that you would travel in. All the letters deal with faithfulness to Christ in the midst of the uh, often threatening pagan culture. Uh, The persecution they face is real. Uh, And so they are uh, good letters of preparation for us and what may come for us one day. And each of the letters takes one of the characteristics of Christ that's mentioned there back in chapter 1, uses the opening line to each church. Uh, For Ephesus, it's the, the stars and about the seven lampstands. And we notice the letters are addressed to, in each case, to the angel of the church. Those are, Jesus tells us in chapter 1, the seven stars in his right hand. Uh, Now, scholars differ. Is the pastor of the church intended? Or is perhaps uh, an angel, a guardian angel of the church intended? Um, I I lean a little to the latter, but for our purposes, I don't think it's going to affect our understanding. Certainly the churches are the seven lampstands, and Jesus wants their light to shine out in the darkness. Uh, Remember, it's the church that carries out the ongoing ministry of Jesus to the ends of the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as Jesus walks among them, we see then that he has authority over those churches. He's very much involved in the lives of those churches. Uh, He's vitally interested in and he's invested in the ministry of the churches. And when Jesus says, I know, we realize we're dealing with one who has intimate, uh, divine knowledge about us. Jesus also shows knowledge of the cities themselves. He's aware of the geography and those things. For instance, he's aware we're going to see that the city of Ephesus has actually been moved several times. So each letter we're going to look at contains a a commendation or rebuke or both, an exhortation or command, and then a a promise connected with the balance of the book that serves to both motivate obedience to Christ uh, and then to give strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Each also contains the admonition to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is important for us to understand the structure and really our approach to the book of Revelation. You may remember in the Old Testament, both Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about the need to have ears to hear uh, about the ministry there, about what's going on. Jesus picks that up and uses it in the Gospels as well. He says, have ears to hear. Now, when Jesus would say that, very often, or sometimes with Ezekiel and Isaiah, uh, they would do it in the context of having made some direct teaching about God and about, about their lives, and then they would illustrate it or apply it with parables. And so here in the, in the structure of Revelation, chapter 1 we saw was an introduction to the whole book. Chapters 2 and 3 contain these seven letters, and they are really the direct teaching portion of the letter. Of the, of the book itself. 
And then the pictures, the stories that follow, will reinforce and help us understand the teaching more clearly. And it all points to the final triumph of the church that ends up in Revelation 21 and 22. So the word pictures and the stories that follow this, like Jesus' parables, are sometimes, for the unbeliever, difficult to understand. They don't make sense to the unbeliever. Because we have to have ears to hear what the Spirit says. As Greg Bill writes, when these people do not respond to God's basic instruction, like these letters, then God gives these parables, these pictures, uh, that unbelievers cannot grasp, and that in turn hardens their hearts to the gospel. What becomes an indirect means to teach believers who are able to spiritually discern the pictures. Albeit we'll see sometimes with some difficulty. Again, that's how Jesus' parables generally worked. That's how Ezekiel's worked and Isaiah's. Let me say that as we move through the book of Revelation, we'll see some rather grotesque images. We'll see monsters even. Uh, that what they do is they point to the, to the grimness and the hideousness of the world that we are prone to try to find our solace in rather than in Christ himself. So we want to turn and flee to Christ, not to this world. Now the context of this first letter is, is the city of Ephesus. It was the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, and Carthage. Had an estimated population of nearly a quarter of a million people. Had a theater in the city that seated some 24,000 people. Uh, they loved entertainment. They loved athletics. Uh, it's a quite wealthy city due to this location and, and, and trade route. The temple to Artemis, Diana is there. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there's also other pagan temples there uh, to distract for worship. And the city itself has, an, has ingratiated itself with the Roman authorities because they've really insisted on the worship of the emperor there in that city. By the time John writes the letter, persecution is taking place for the believers because they will not say Caesar is Lord. For many years, Christianity had sort of been tolerated under the umbrella of Judaism across the empire. But now as it seemed more and more distinct from Judaism, intolerance and persecution have begun. And of course, we know in the New Testament, the church is quite significant. Luke devotes a good bit of time to Paul's ministry there. We see that in, in uh, Acts 19. Uh, Paul arrived there, 53, 54 A.D., he spent three years there, and the gospel went out all across Asia, we're told. Uh, we see the gospel resisted in the stories there. We see as well uh, that there was great gospel triumph. In, Luke tw- in Acts 20, Luke shows us the very emotional uh, farewell between Paul and the Ephesian elders. Five years later, Paul addresses one of his letters uh, to the church at Ephesus. And a few years after that, when he writes to Timothy, his first letter, Timothy's servant is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Now let's make this point. Some look at these seven letters and they see a progression in history. They think each church is a certain number of years in, in world history, in the history of the church. Um, I'm just going to say a plain reading of the letters makes that hardly seem evident uh, and hardly seem possible. 
So if you think that, forget it, okay? Um, no, numbers are very important in the book of Revelation. How many churches are there written to here? Seven. What's the number of completeness in the Bible? Seven. Very good. All right, so seven churches, seven letters, the number of questions represents the whole church. The church across every age, if you will. Uh, all the churches are to learn what Jesus says to them here. Uh, now, knowing Ephesus' history and Acts and what Paul writes them, we're not going to be really surprised by Jesus' words of commendation that come to the church. Pick it up in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have t- tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, what stands out there, that, that, that sounds like an amazing church to me, doesn't it? Um, uh, they've got a history of, of good works. They responded to the gospel. They sent the gospel out across the whole region. They've put a lot of effort into their ministry, and they still do. They're enduring persecution, difficult times. They heeded Paul's warning when he met with the elders that you've got to watch for false teachers to come up in your midst. And, they, and they've done that and they've gotten rid of false teaching. They're doctrinally sound. They're committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith. All right? Uh, uh, it's not been easy. But they've not grown weary. In a moment, Jesus will mention the Nicolaitans. And no one's certain who they were, but probably there are those like Balaam who tried to push people into sexual immorality of the pagan worship going on around them uh, with, with Artemis and the other cults there. So it sounds a lot like a church we'd want to be a part of. Strong ministry, strong activity, strong teaching, strong history. And as David Strain reminds us, what an encouragement must have been for the Ephesian Christians to hear that Jesus knows he knows this. He saw them and acknowledged it. I know. Some, of, some people quietly serve and are rarely given any recognition for it. Some are content to, to, uh, uh, to pray and work in the background. No one knows uh, and no one sees. And there's no acknowledgement and, and you wouldn't want it any other way. But then you hear that the one who walks among the lampstands says to us, I know. I know what you did. He knows the unseen giving, the, the meal that you took, the, the quiet word of encouragement to somebody who was struggling, uh, faithful prayers over the years for some desperate situation. No one else sees it, perhaps, but Jesus does. And really, that's all that matters. And Jesus knows. So, you're hearing this letter read in the church, and you're saying, all right, here we go. Uh, but then there's a complaint or a charge, and it's quite devastating, really, and surprising. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus says they've lost their first love. Now, maybe some of you remember when you fell in love, or at least you thought you did for that first time. Do you remember that? 
You couldn't bear the thought of being apart from that person. Uh, and uh, every moment together and squeezing the hand was just pure bliss and joy, right? Uh, Jesus is pointing them back to how things were when the church was first established. Perhaps as many as 40 years before this. When Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, we're told in chapter 1 that he commends them for their love. We've already referred to the, the, the meeting between Paul and the elders, and there was love present there, obviously. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we have this reminder, this encouragement in chapter 3. Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So friends, this is really a stunning charge here. And it's a scary charge. Because with them doing so many of the right things, what does it mean? They've lost their first love. Scholars go in different directions here, two ways in principle. But that's, I think that they're both come back together, they're connected. And first, there is that just a general loss of love for Jesus. Not that they've stopped loving Jesus, but somehow they've lost the fervor. They've lost the intensity. They've lost the zeal. Now clearly the first generation believers in Jesus in Ephesus were known for their love. But now we're on the second generation or maybe the third generation of believers. And in a very real sense, we've heard they're very good at living the Christian life. But evidently, they're doing it without a deep affection, without a deep heart attachment to Christ. Uh, Greg Beale in particular sees this as a, a loss of love for the gospel message and for the power of the gospel to change lives. In other words, a loss of zeal for evangelism and missions. It's interesting, Jesus connects that way back in Matthew 24. There Jesus is cautioning us about the, the difficulties the church will face as it moves closer and closer to the second coming. And, and listen to what he says. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. And betray one another and, and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. All right? The love of many will grow cold. But the one but the one endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testament to all nations. And then the end will come. So notice he speaks of the, the loss of love. And the implication would be that such love is needed for the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so their zeal to make God's message known is lagging. I'm going make an honest uh, concern I have during the recent years of the, in the PCA. I've seen, observed, uh, a, general, a sort of a, a loss of zeal for the Great Commission especially global outreach with the gospel message. 
I sometimes fear there's more interest in word and deed ministry, which is a good thing, by the way, than there is in gospel proclamation, however, which is a much more needed thing. One of the three prongs the PCA was founded on was a commitment to the Great Commission. So we've tried hard to keep that alive here. We have our mission conference. We have now a Sunday school class to learn to share our faith. But I believe we have to be cautious about something. And that is we've got to be sure that we love Jesus more than we love the Great Commission. We've got to be sure we love Jesus more than we love telling people about Jesus. Now, of course, there's a connection between the two. But we've got to be sure we love Jesus most of all. Maybe we can get clear about what I'm trying to say here. If we look at Jesus' command uh, for us, because that's where he outlines the remedy for us. Look at it. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So the first clue for us is to remember. Go back. Review the history. Think through what was my life like without Christ. Think about the hopelessness. Think about the futility. Think about the despair. Then remember the change. The forgiveness of sins. The inner peace. The newfound hope. Then remember the price that Jesus paid for that. Remember his suffering. Remember the cross. Remember his death. Remember what made us alive, and that is His resurrection. Remember the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower us for gospel living, for love, and for gospel proclamation. Remember all that. And then look what we're doing. Look at our works. Look at our teaching. Look at our relationships. And very simply, is our love what it was? Are we better at doing the Christian life than we are at being Christians. What might be some clues we've lost our love? Maybe there's a lack of desire to join with God's people for worship on Sundays. Maybe there's a lack of desire to read God's Word or to spend time in prayer. Maybe we treat Bible study as a hobby to gain knowledge rather than as a path to loving Jesus. Maybe think we don't need this body of Christ. I can make it on my own. Or maybe we discern some other clue in our lives. And these are hard questions. Because in reality, we know that Jesus also links our love for him with what we do. After all, Jesus said what? If you love me, keep my commandments. All right? But obviously, Jesus sees a problem in the hearts of our Ephesian brothers and sisters, such that we need to examine our hearts. And for each one of us, it's going to be different and intensely personal. So maybe right now you're thinking what I'm thinking as I contemplate this text. I mean, this is it's hard to put a, the finger on where we stand here. And I'm sure it was for the Ephesians. I'm sure they thought the day before this letter arrived that their lives were all they should be. But Jesus says they were wrong. And that should scare us. And so we need to heed Jesus' command to repent, to have a change of heart about the way we live. We need to be sure that we are doing the works that are keeping with repentance that John the Baptist talked about and Jesus talked about in the Gospels. That they're out of a love for Christ and not out of performance for other people. 
We need to be sure that our zeal for the Great Commission and evangelism is because of our love for Jesus, not as a way of performing for the church or for the world. The command, he says, to go on and do works that you did at the beginning confirms that Jesus is hes not just talking about emotion here. He is talking about how we demonstrate our love by how we live. Love is an action word. So to be sure, Jesus sees this as a danger for us because he gives us a, uh, a statement that ought to grab our attention, this caution. He says, what, if not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, there's the historical situation. Uh, the city of Ephesus is a port city because it's got the Caister River there. And over the last millennium, there's been several times they had to move the location of the city because the river kept silting up and they, and they had to move it so they could continue to be a port city. So it was moved. And now the Lord Jesus threatens to remove the church. Why? Because a church that loses its first love will eventually fall away. It may take some time. But all the works, the effort, the endurance, the discernment, the doctrine will not matter if there's not love for Christ. It will not matter when the love is gone. Eventually, going through the motions will get old, and we are lost without our love. A Christian is not one who's going through the motions of, of it. A Christian is one who's being one. Friends, if we get this right, then the promise Jesus makes is incredible. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, notice, churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Had Adam and Eve not uh, sinned by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, they would then have been escorted and allowed to eat from the tree of life, which would have confirmed them in a perfect state, and they would have lived forever in perfection, and so too would have we uh, throughout eternity. So what we discover here, though, is what they missed out on the garden because of sin is now available in the New Jerusalem to believers. Jesus is pointing to the end of the book of Revelation, to the New Jerusalem, where we will eat of this fruit. The trees are there. So let's be sure we hear this. Again, it's to the churches, the churches of every age and every place across history. And the offer is to the one who conquers. He's not calling us to some hopeless exercise here. Now, Revelation is not a book just to indulge our questions about the second coming or to frighten us, to discourage us. But it's a book that's going to show us the triumph of the Lamb in His glory in order to captivate our hearts so that we might love Him. We might really love Jesus. So what about us? If you're here today and you're not yet a believer, what we're talking about may seem quite strange. Let me tell you. We're talking about the most wonderful thing in the universe, the wonderful subject, and that's Jesus Himself. And Jesus loves us. If you don't know that love personally, we'd love to share with you today how you can come to know that amazing, forgiving, accepting, life-changing love. We love Him because He first loved us. So for people who are believers, how do we apply this? I mean, in my view, this is the scariest of all the seven letters. Because the description of the church sounds so good. And I'll say we have a reputation of being a live church. 
church with a passion for God and compassion for the nations. Yet what does Jesus think about our love? Somebody say, how do we know this warning applies to us? Because it's given to all the churches. And it's a warning, but I would hasten to add, because it's from Jesus, it's a loving warning. And it's for our good. It's to keep us on track. It's to give us strength for living today and hope for tomorrow. We love Jesus most of all. I would also say, if for some reason I think this does not apply to me, then it most definitely applies to me. All right? None of us loves Jesus as completely as we should. You know, none of us has mastered loving Jesus with our heart and soul and mind and strength. So when to constantly remember Jesus' love for us, start each day at the cross, reflect on His love, His amazing love, the sacrifice the Son of God given for me. My debt He paid. My death He died that I might live. Each day we need to sing a song again. We need to sing about His glory, sing about His benefits, reflect on His love, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, to truly seek to know how broad and deep and wide and high is that love. And as we remember, we will repent because we'll realize that we don't love as we should. We do realize our human love is always an imperfect reflection of His love. But we should resolve, resolve to love Jesus more tomorrow than we do today. And we show that by how we live. Friends, Jesus doesn't put this in here to put us on a, uh, a permanent guilt trip. He doesn't do us to make us doubt our salvation. Jesus cautions us here because He loves us. Uh, remember, Revelation 1 reminds us to Him who loves us uh, and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us to be a kingdom priest to His God and Father. Friends, go to the promises. He's loved us in everlasting love. He's made us a kingdom. He will never love us less than now. He will never love us more than now. He loves us with a perfect love. So I would suggest the very fact that this letter sets off alarms in our minds and hearts, it's a good thing from the Holy Spirit to help us root out our sin. None of us maintains perfectly the love we had at first all the time. But all of us should be seeking to grow in that love. Remember, we're lost without our love. We're just going through the motions. But resting in His love, we're secure. So I would say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we acknowledge uh, that our love is not what it should be. And so, Father, we would, we would ask your forgiveness. We would ask you to help us remember 
Father, to remember the way it was, to remember what you did for us at the cross through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, to, to repent, to turn away from our failure to love as we should. And then, Father, to seek the Holy Spirit's help to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, is anybody here that doesn't yet know the joy that comes from knowing what your love is? Father, today, show them that love. Show them the cross, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.